Blending families with teenagers is tough. Darren Galsworthy had two children with his ex-girlfriend Tanya when he ran into an old acquaintance named Angie. Things between them got serious quickly. Angie had a child too, a son named Nathan. It was obvious to Darren that the boy was possessive of his mother, but there was no way to know the tragic turn that possessiveness would later take. Hey everybody, welcome to The Unlovely Truth. I'm your host, private investigator Lori Morrison, and I'm going to bring you another story from the world of true crime, and then we're going to see where it intersects with our faith. I want you to join forces with me so that we can learn how to be a different kind of PI, a person of impact. I'll give you a practical way to do that after we dive into today's case. This is Season 3, Episode 45, and our book this week is The Evil Within by Darren Galsworthy. And our guest is former private investigator, Amazon bestselling author, philanthropist, and artist, Connie Rowland. This newly blended family all got along well enough at first. Darren's son, Danny, was thrilled to be with Angie and Nathan. The boys played together well despite their age difference of eight years. Darren's daughter, Becky, was not yet two and didn't really play much with the boys. Darren tried to be thoughtful of his new stepson and make sure that Nathan still got time alone with his mother. Weekends when all the kids were together were so busy, but that was exactly what Darren and Angie wanted. Darren was determined to give his kids more than he had had growing up. His ex-girlfriend didn't really seem to feel the same way. When Danny and Becky were five and three, she lost custody of them, so they came to live full-time with Angie and Darren. Nathan seemed excited being around Danny more, but not being around Becky. He was 11 years older than her, so his attitude didn't really seem to be too concerning at first. Darren tried hard to fill the role of a father in Nathan's life since the boy never saw his biological father. According to Darren, the first real hint of trouble came after Nathan's first girlfriend broke things off with him. He began stalking her, using the excuse that she owed him money. It got to the point where the girl said that she was afraid of Nathan. Angie and Darren hoped that he would outgrow this obsession with this girl, and after a while he did seem to. But they noticed that he started hanging out with much, much younger girls. Girls about 12 years old, around Becky's age. Life wasn't easy for Becky. She was getting bullied at school and had developed an eating disorder. She was leaning a lot on Angie to get through this difficult time. Nathan didn't like that. He didn't like how much of his mother's time and attention Becky was getting. Becky began to see a counselor and confessed that she did not feel safe around Nathan. But for some reason, nobody took these feelings very seriously. In time, Becky did manage to turn things in her life around for the better and she was dreaming of becoming an interior designer. That's when the family was all dealt a major blow. Angie was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. And not long after that, 21-year-old Nathan announced that he wanted his family to meet his new girlfriend, Shauna. He tried to tell them she was 19, but when Darren first saw her, he knew that she barely looked 14. He refused to let Nathan bring around an underage girl, so they didn't see much of him for a couple of years. Angie liked Shauna, but Darren was really concerned about the young couple's age gap, as he should have been. Becky wanted desperately to make friends with Shauna, but the older girl stayed really distant from her. Things were tense when the family was all together. Nathan wasn't working full-time, and Danny and Becky resented their brother mooching off of their parents. 
There did seem to be a ray of hope, though, when Nathan and Shauna had a baby. Somehow, fatherhood seemed to suit Nathan. He and Shauna came over to hang out at Darren and Angie's house one day when Angie had a doctor's appointment. That was the last day anyone saw Becky alive. Becky went missing in February of 2015 from St. George, Bristol, which is roughly a two and a half hour drive west of London. Her laptop and cell phone were missing as well, but it didn't seem like anything else that a girl would take if she was going to be gone for a while was actually missing. A week passed and nobody knew where Becky was still. Police and volunteers searched the area surrounding the Gallsworthy home. Divers even searched a nearby pond. Nathan and Shauna said that they were at the family home when they heard a door slam, and they just assumed that that noise was Becky leaving the house. After 12 days of being missing, Becky's dismembered body was found about a mile and a half from the family's home. The media soon reported that a 28-year-old man and a 21-year-old woman and four others had been arrested in connection with Becky's disappearance and death. The public soon found out that that 28-year-old man was Nathan. Becky's stepbrother. Shauna had been arrested too. And it's so interesting to me that she and Nathan had been with the family every day since Becky had gone missing. They'd even helped search for her. Nathan helped Darren make an appeal on social media. And now he was admitting to killing his stepsister. Darren was crushed. He'd always considered Nathan his son. And he couldn't understand how he could betray him, his mother, and most of all, the girl who had been his sister. After Becky's funeral, the family focused on getting an answer to the one question that bothered them the most. Why? They knew and accepted that Nathan had killed his sister, but they just couldn't fathom what would have made him make such a horrible choice. The police wouldn't tell them much, protecting information for Nathan and Shauna's trial. And you wouldn't think that the family's suffering could get any worse, but it was about to in a big, big way. During the trial, Darren learned that Nathan and Shauna had used stun guns to subdue Becky, and the prosecution contended that that was because they had a plan to sexually abuse her. It was even harder to hear that Becky confided in friends that Nathan had threatened to kill her, but for some reason, she never told Darren or Angie. Nathan was found guilty of murder and various other charges and sentenced to life in prison, and he's required to serve at least 33 years. That means he's going to be 61 before he has even a chance to be released. Shauna was found guilty of manslaughter and some other charges, and she was sentenced to just 14 years in prison. This book brings up some great topics to talk about in blending our families, learning to get along, learning to see the red flags, learning to reach out and tell someone when we think that our life might be at risk. But I still can't really recommend that you go out and get a copy of this book because there are parts that are pretty graphic. There were so many signs that things just weren't quite right with Nathan and Shauna. And Darren blamed himself for not seeing them and not acting on the ones that he did see. We're going to talk about that and some other things with our guest, Connie Rowland, right after this. I just want to take a minute to thank everybody from my book launch team, any listener that has given me support and encouragement, and of course, anybody who has reached out and bought one of the books, How to Kick Fear to the Curb. 
Because God doesn't want us living in a spirit of fear, because that's going to hold us back from living the life He's called us to. So I just want to say thank you again. I hope that you are able to kick fear to the curb in your life so that you can fully live your calling. Now let's check in with today's guest. Hey, Connie, I want to thank you for joining us today. It's always great to talk to another person who understands the PI life. Well, hi, Lori. Thank you for having me on the show today. I really appreciate it. As I was summarizing this story for my listeners, it just really made me think about how we think we know people. You know, do you think that some people are really able to hide who they are or Do we just overlook things that we don't want to see? I think sometimes people can hide in the beginning of a relationship. I think we all try to put on that face, you know, that um, Mm -hmm. happy face. But the true self always comes out in the end, you know. So I worked as a a private investigator for about five years. I lived in Los Angeles and I worked on a lot of cases that were, you know, like cheating spouse type cases, divorces, child custody. And a lot of those types of themes kind of came out in those particular cases where, you know, maybe people thought they were with someone different than they actually were. The family stuff is hard. I've I've done very little of that. And I have to say that's that stuff disturbs me more than some of the criminal stuff does. Because Mm -hmm. like you said, you're with somebody that you think you know, that you feel like you can trust, and then you find out that you can't. And it's just devastating. Just like in, in our book this week, you know, it's really easy to focus on Darren. It was his daughter that was killed. He wrote the book. But it was also so absolutely devastating for his wife, Angie. Because she had to live with the fact that her son had done these horrible things and just devastated the family. Now, when you were working with clients, did you ever come across anything where people just really had to face something that they just didn't want to face? Yeah, so the case that comes to mind for me right off the bat is a a celebrity case. I'm working in Los Angeles. I had the opportunity to work on a couple of different cases that involve celebrities. And, you know, for ethical reasons, I'm not able to name names. But this particular actor, his wife came and hired us. She had been cheated on before in a previous relationship. And then this actor had also cheated on her. So she had a lot of trust issues And, you know, that's always a difficult thing when you're having to talk with someone who is going through that, of course. But this case was, it started off pretty typical. We had like a a one car surveillance on him and he wasn't really doing anything. So she just didn't want to accept that about him. So we put two cars and then three cars on him. We had multiple investigators working this case. And even after we were kind of, you know, going down this rabbit hole of doing all these different types of surveillances, she didn't want to accept that nothing was happening. So we put a tracker on his car. And one of my main jobs was to keep track of the tracker and all the data that came off of it. And it's kind of how we were able to follow him. He was very erratic in his driving and in traffic in LA. It's pretty crazy. 
also it's one of the few times that I actually got found out. It was really disturbing to me because I thought it was doing so good. But he saw me because he was like looping around in traffic, of course. But luckily, he thought I was like some crazy fan. And so he just (laughs) waved at me and like was really nice. But, you know, I pulled off of the surveillance for the day and let somebody else pick it up. We we could track him. So we, we knew where he was. That was kind of a funny and, and kind of a scary thing to have happen. It's like, oh, I don't want him to know I'm following him. But anyway, and in the course of my investigation, I actually talked to him a couple of times because I was like following around on foot. He was going in and out of the gym, kind of lost track of where he was and what he was doing. So we did a lot of things. We also, this is so crazy. His wife brought his underwear to us to analyze Oh my God. That has never happened in any other investigation that I was involved in. Of course, we didn't do it. We sent it to a lab, but I was like, wow, this is really getting kind of out there. And then she brought his diary for me to read. Like when he was at work, she had someone bring it to me and I had to read it while he was at work and then give it back to him. And that was also kind of weird. I thought, first of all, it's kind of strange that a man had a diary, but Um, There are a lot of personal things in there. So at the end of the day, what we were able to discover was that he was not cheating. Probably the only case I worked on where a man wasn't cheating, because by the time you hire an investigator, you kind of already know what's happening. But because she had been cheated on before, she just could not accept that that was the case. So what we found out from use of the tracker and from surveillance was that he was actually going to the certain place every single day. And she thought that that's where he had a mistress. And it was actually his drug dealer's house. Yeah. Okay. I don't know which is worse. Yeah. Well, to me, that would be pretty shocking, I think. But to her, it didn't even phase her. She didn't care at all. Okay. And, well, I guess. Uh, you know, I mean, to each his own, I guess, but she didn't care at all about that. She just cared if he was cheating. Even wow. after giving her all of the evidence, though, she had a really hard time accepting that he wasn't cheating and he wasn't. Well, trust is such a, a crazy, crazy thing. And I'm just going to go out on a limb and say, if you have that many trust issues with a person, that just might not be your person. Mm-hmm. And also, FYI, Don't put trackers on people's cars. (laughs) Every jurisdiction has different laws about when that's okay and when it's not okay. And so just don't do it. You don't want to run afoul of that. Um, Yes. Anyone who's listening, please don't do that to your significant other. We had permission. We had written permission from the wife to do this. It was her car. It was in her name. Yes, and that's an important thing to point out. I'm glad that you that you did. It's also years ago. Laws have changed. Yes, yeah. No, no DIY PI work out there, please. We want everybody to stay really, really safe. Yes, for sure. Well, and you know, talking about trust again, the book describes in really vivid detail from the dad's point of view that this was somebody that he trusted. He helped raise this person. He did not have any major issues with him. He, there were small red flags that I think he chose to overlook. But once he realized what the boy he raised as his own son had done to his daughter, he really described this hate that grew in him for Nathan and his girlfriend, Shauna. 
Now, when you were an investigator, how did you deal with bitterness over what you were seeing? Because I know that's an issue for me. And I want to know how, how you deal with when you see people doing things that are just so wrong. Mm-hmm. How do you deal with that? It's easy to become jaded when you do this type of work. You know, you do see kind of the darker side of life in a lot of cases. I think for me, I was able to compartmentalize it. I didn't really know at the time that that's what I was doing. I was pretty young. I was in my 20s when I was doing this work. And I don't know, I just was able to separate it from my life. You know, like this is their life and this is my life. But I also wanted to always have compassion and understanding for what they were going through, for what everyone was going through, because there are two sides to every story. You know, so, you know, my responsibility is, of course, to my client and getting the information that they need. And so I have to set my I have to set aside my emotions to do that. But I also want to realize that there are real people involved in every case on both sides. Yeah, for me, one of the hardest things is when you're talking with someone that you suspect of doing something, if not criminal, at least kind of heinous, just not a good, nice person. But you have to speak with them as though you're kind of friends because, you know, regardless of what people see on TV, nobody just gives it up because someone's yelling at them. You have to establish a rapport with them and you have to get them to think that talking to you is in their best interest. You know, they don't care about your client. They don't care most of the time about making things right or making them better. They're worried about themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, did you see that that side of human nature too? Yeah, I think there's a little bit of that in, in every case, right? That you, you kind of have to realize that when you're doing PI work, you're not really seeing people at their very best usually meeting them in a very difficult stage of their life. You know, they're going through something hard. And so you just have to have some understanding for that, I think. But you also have to build that rapport. Like you're talking about, some of my clients weren't exactly what I would say, you know, are good people. Some of them did do terrible things, but they were still my client. And my responsibility was to help them with their case. Now, at this point in your life, were you a person of faith yet? I was, yeah. How did that affect your work? So this is an interesting thing, something I don't talk about a lot, but I hope it helps someone who's listening. During this period of my life, I I was a Christian. I became a Christian when I was very young, but I'd gone through a difficult time in the church that we were members of. A lot of bad things happened in that church. And so I walked away from faith. You know, God didn't walk away from me. I just want to say that. He didn't ever leave me. I walked away and I said, okay, I'm going to live my life the way that I want to live it. And that was a really bad decision for me. And it, it took me down a really dark path of my own that God had to get me out of. When the time was right, he, he rescued me from it. And I recommitted my life to Christ and, and I meant it. And I've lived my life for him every single day since then. I love that story because I know that's going to resonate with a lot of people. We've all been, if you've gone to church for any length of time, I think we've all been hurt by, if not the church itself, someone within the church. And so, you know, people are people. 
Yes. Even, even within the church. And that's one of the things that I think is most disturbing to me is working. You're, you're looking for people you think have done terrible things, yet they claim to be followers of Christ. Mm-hmm. Were there very many situations where you had that kind of situation? Not really, but I think on a personal level, yes. I mean, we're, we're all imperfect people. Right. We're all flawed in many ways. And that's why we need a savior. You know, if we were perfect, we wouldn't need Jesus. But because we're flawed, we definitely do. So you're dealing with people, you're going to have conflict and you're going to have problems arise. That's, that's just human nature. Well, I know that you're doing something very, very different now from being a PI. And, and we'll talk about what that is in a second. But first, I want you to tell me. What happened in your life that kind of brought about that transition? Well, some years back, my my mom had cancer. And during her her cancer treatments, I, I took care of her. And she she and I talked a lot about like how could we show people God's hand in their lives? And we we started off by like making pictures of different hand shapes. That that was kind of where it started. And then I, after she passed away, I started making artwork with sign language in it. I grew up in a church where it's the same church that hurt me. But before that, it was a wonderful place. And I'm so glad that I grew up in it. God put me there for a reason. But that church had a a deaf program and interpreters for the deaf. And at the time, I didn't realize how important that was for you know, to the deaf people. And after I started making artwork with sign language in it, that's when I learned that only 2% of deaf people worldwide have been told about Jesus. And uh, it's heartbreaking to me. I I think I was very sheltered growing up in a church that had deaf interpreters that I didn't realize that it wasn't available to other people. So I give 10% of the profits of my artwork to um, churches who are spreading the gospel of Jesus to the deaf community locally. I think it's very important because those churches are underfunded, they're overlooked, and and they need help. That's so amazing. And it's called? So my artwork is called Master's Hand Collection. And where can we find it? You can find me on my website, mastershandcollection.com. And while you're there, you can download a free devotional is titled Seven Simple Ways to See God's Hand in Your Life. I love that. And I'll have a link to her website so you can check out all her resources in the show notes. Make sure you look for that. But before we go, I know that you also have a very personal connection, not just through work, but through your family to true crime. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, when I was 13, my uncle was murdered and it was a very difficult time in my family's life, it's something that when it happens, it's, it's overwhelming. You know, you're, when you lose someone, just, you know, if someone dies in your family, it's very overwhelming. But when someone is murdered, there's also a lot of pressure that goes into that because you're having to go through an investigation and a trial. And in our case, we went through two trials. The man who murdered my uncle requested and was granted a new trial many years after the fact. And so for us, it was, you know, having to relive it all over again, just when you 
think it's all over. We had to do it again. And at that point, I was an adult. So I was in court every single day staring at the man who murdered my uncle. And uh, he had no remorse whatsoever. It was kind of strange. I think in some ways, maybe it would have made it easier on us if he at least was sorry for what he had done to us. He's very belligerent. Even now, he thinks that what he did was right. And that makes it very difficult for everyone. But, you know, what it does to a family is it just, it can either tear you apart or it can bring you together. And so I think that faith for us was a really important aspect of bringing us together. You know, faith is what holds you together in those difficult moments. Without faith, I don't know where we would be. That's, that's the only thing that we had to, to hold on to. And the, the promises of God are what you have to really hold tight to in those moments. A verse that I go back to over and over again is Deuteronomy 31.8 that says, The Lord Himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. And uh, that's just something that gives me comfort. It gives me strength. And the rest of that says, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged. And when you're going through a murder trial, there's a lot of moments where you're fearful and you're discouraged and you think things are not going to turn out the way that you want them to. But that promise from God, you know, is always there for us. He is always with us. Well, I'm so sorry for your loss. I appreciate you sharing that as an encouragement that God is always with us. And, you know, scripture tells us over and over and over not to be afraid, not to live in fear. Mm-hmm. And so I think you're right. I, I don't know without faith how you get through things like that. I, I don't think that people who are not Christians, who don't have faith, I, I don't think that they do. Not intact, you know, like their relationships crumble, their families crumble, because they don't have that hope that we have in knowing Jesus. Well, again, thank you so much for sharing that personal story, sharing your work stories, and sharing what you're doing now. Don't forget to go to the Master's Hand. There's a link in the show notes. Check out all those resources and support Connie's work. It is just so, so important. We talk a lot about marginalized communities on this podcast. Anybody that's a little different from the mainstream, they've got a harder time. And so I love that you're reaching out to a group that that not everybody does. Well, thank you, Lori. I I really appreciate you having me on the show, letting me relive a little bit of my PI days and, and share my personal story. It was a lot of fun. Thank you. It sure was. Thank you. The Bible verse that I want us to talk a little bit about today is from Proverbs, chapter 14, verse 22, and I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible Version. Don't those who plan evil go astray, but those who plan good find loyalty and faithfulness. Nathan's actions, as they're described in this book, are just a perfect example of the heart of this passage. Notice that God isn't calling out just those who do evil things, but those who plan to do evil things. And if you look at James 1.15, this is from the Amplified Version, it says, Then when the illicit desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin has run its course, it gives birth to death. Our thought lives matter so much because they influence our actions. 
so that when we think good thoughts and plan to take good actions, the Bible promises that we're going to find loyalty and faithfulness among the people that are around us. And so I want to tie all that in to this week's practical action step. When we see someone struggling with dark thoughts or we notice anyone becoming obsessed with violence, whether that's in song lyrics or movies or video games or wherever they're consuming it, we need to check in with that person. It might not be an issue. In my line of work, I see a lot of violence, but I know how I need to deal with it to not get overwhelmed. And I've got people holding me accountable. But someone else might be having thoughts that are going to give birth to deeds that will have life-altering consequences for them and maybe even for others. We've got to watch out for each other so that we can keep ourselves, our families, and our communities safer. If you like this episode, be sure to check out a link that I'm going to put in the show notes to a similar episode. I've just had so many amazing guests, and they give me unbelievably fantastic information. I don't want you to miss any of it. And please, if you can, help somebody else start their journey to being a different kind of PI, a person of impact, by sharing this episode, by subscribing, and giving the podcast a five-star rating and a nice review so that we can grow. The Unlovely Truth is written and produced by me, Lori Morrison. Music is by Neil Cortex, and the artwork is by Shelby Highland. See you all next time. Thank you for listening to this episode that is part of the Spark Media Network that can now be heard on the Edify app. 